Well, thank you, Huey, for um, praying for us and reading the scriptures and uh, doing all that you do for the ministries here at Cornerstone. Definitely been God's gift to us as a body. Uh, just one final plug for FOF next week, our 13th session, the new class is starting up. And if you're considering um, taking it, please talk to Tom and Doreen Furco. Um, it, it doesn't mean you'll be joining the church. You can just take it to learn, to understand these doctrines. You can definitely take it as a membership class to formally join our fellowship. And I ask that you would do it with a sober mind because we have a high view of membership here at Cornerstone. Our commitment to you is genuine, and we also would like that kind of commitment to us. So with reflection and prayer, we ask you to consider in joining our next um, membership class. Well, if you were here last week, <clears throat> you heard that our family was away on vacation. Uh, wife and I and Elizabeth went up to the Bay Area for a week. We had some relatives there. We visited and showed off our, our baby Elizabeth. They didn't really care that we came as long as we brought baby Elizabeth. And while we were there, we heard Bob's sermon online. And just what a great job of teaching our elder Bob uh, did last week. I was thoroughly encouraged, rebuked, really searched my heart to make sure to get rid of all the bitterness that I have towards people here at Cornerstone. So I was really challenged by that. Just kidding. And <laughs> one of the highlights of the vacation was, um, well, one, of the, one of the things we did was go to Alcatraz. So I took a picture of me inside the cell, a picture of Serene inside the cell, and a picture of Elizabeth inside the cell. <laughs> That's going to be a riot. When she gets married, we'll show that, uh, how she grew up, <laughs> underprivileged. Um, but it definitely the highlight of our vacation was we went to East Bay Baptist Church for their morning service, met with Pastor John Shim and his wife, Nancy. They invited us over for dinner on Monday night. We got there at 6.30, and we left their home at 12.40 in the morning, six hours and ten minutes of sweet fellowship. Um, many of our members, several of our members have come from East Bay and just to tell you guys that we have a like-minded church in the Bay Area. We have a pastor there who is a godly man, a man of God's word who is faithfully declaring the whole counsel of God in our six hours together. Wow, just a hard tie, real just a unity in faith, unity in philosophy of ministry. Sir and I came away from that fellowship really encouraged. They have three precious children, and hopefully one day we can invite their family to us. Maybe he can speak in one of our retreats for all of you guys to be exposed to his ministry as well. <clears throat> well, enough about my vacation. Um, to our study this morning, we are, we are trying to revamp, reorganize, and improve our communion service. And the A-team, uh, headed by Huey, asked, asked us if we can do a study on the Lord's Supper, do a study on communion. That is why we'll delay our return to the Gospel of John for two more weeks, and we'll look at the Lord's Supper for this morning, next week, and possibly one more session. Probably done next week, but possibly one more session after that. Now, in studying the Lord's Supper, I realized that Probably no topic in Christendom has been the cause of more debate and controversy than the Lord's Supper. For almost 2,000 years, ever since Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, this has stirred the hearts and minds of men. 
And yet in every age, it has been attacked, questioned, and modified. It has undergone such incredible changes in its observance and meaning that I believe the first, gener- first century church would scarcely recognize it today. <clears throat> Paul Tillich writes that, We are living in an age of the church in which we are threatened with the death of the ordinances. He says, when something spiritually significant like the Lord's Supper becomes more ritual than reality, its death is most assuredly not far away. End quote. That Lord's Supper, as it is practiced by so many in the church today, is so mired in superstition, in ritual, in formal outward external religion, that the reality is gone. Therefore, though people are practicing the Lord's Supper, the genuine Lord's Supper has passed away. William Barclay in his book, The Lord's Supper, also says, the 20th century is the age of inquiry rather than of conviction, and of interest rather than commitment. There are therefore fewer today who can bring to the Lord's Supper what the Lord's Supper demands. Men are curious about it, but their hearts are not touched by it. And quote. He laments the lack of teaching in the churches concerning the Lord's Supper. Let me quote him again. He says, Without instruction to precede it, the Lord's Supper degenerates into either formalism or superstition. It may well be true to say that the greatest failure of the present day church lies in its failure to exercise a teaching ministry. And where there is failure in teaching, there must also be a devaluation of the Lord's Supper. End quote. Now, even a a cursory observation of the church today would tell us that these men are telling us the truth. The Lord's Supper, as it is viewed and practiced by many, is very far removed from the teachings of the Bible. The practice is so convoluted by superstition, mysticism, formalism, and ritualistic mindset that it is a challenge for you and I to discover the original and biblical intention of communion. Well, my rallying cry in ministry as the church is that the Reformation is not over. The Reformation, the reformer started in the 16th century, is not something in the past, but it is to be a daily reality for the believer, meaning that it is the responsibility of each generation of believers to rise above their own culture, to go to the Scriptures and discover the truth of God's Word and faithfully apply it to one's life and to one's family, That is the goal of our church, and that is the goal of our study. Because Reformation is not over, we must continually reform our understanding and practice of everything in the church, from our prayer life, our devotional life, to the preaching of the Word, to our fellowship, to baptism, and for this morning, our understanding and practice of the Lord's Supper. We must reform it so that we might be consistent with the New Testament instructions concerning it. That is our goal. That our practice of communion is consistent with the New Testament. So let's go to the Bible. Let's go to the text. 
you might be surprised to find out the sheer simplicity of God's design for the church. It is not really confusing at all. In fact, our Lord Himself instituted only two ordinances for the church. Just two, that's it. First one He instituted before he, His death on the cross. The second is post-resurrection. The first is communion. Second is baptism. That's it. These two practices are to be faithfully followed by the church of Jesus Christ. One was given before the cross, during his last Passover meal in the upper room. The other was given after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, when he commanded his disciples to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And you know what? As we read the book of Acts, that's exactly what they did. In Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, Peter heralded the gospel proclaim the good news that there is forgiveness of sin in Christ. In verse 41, it tells us that about 3,000 people responded to the gospel. They responded with faith. And what did they do? The first thing they did was they baptized them and added them to the visible church. The very next verse tells us that these brand new believers devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles devoted themselves to the fellowship, to prayer, and to the breaking of bread. The first thing these believers did was get baptized. And one of the next things they did was partake of the Lord's Supper. These two ordinances, baptism and communion, are permanent for the church. We are to carry them out faithfully until Christ returns. Well, let's now look briefly at the various terms that are used in the Bible to refer to communion. There are five terms associated with the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. First four come from the Apostle Paul. The first term is communion. Communion, it comes from 1 Corinthians 10.16. Paul says, the bread which we break, is it not the koinonia, sharing, participation, Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? That's the first term. That's a term that I guess we use most often at Cornerstone. The second term is the Lord's table. The Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 10.21 You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. And this became synonymous with communion. The third term is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.20. Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. We'll get into this next week, but because of the division in the church, some believers were wealthier, were eating a better meal before the poor Christians came in. And because of this fraction, this division, Paul is saying, When you are partaking together, that is not the Lord's Supper you are eating. It is man's supper. So this term became synonymous with communion. The fourth term is found in 1 Corinthians 11.24. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Greek word for giving thanks is Eucharist. Greek for giving thanks, thanksgiving. 
And that is the fourth term. The final term is found in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, no need for confusion. Are these five terms referring to five, five separate ordinances or five separate practices? No. These five terms are all synonymous. If you come across them in your reading of the New Testament, just remember, they all point to one institution, one ordinance, communion, the Lord's Supper. Now, let's move on and consider the origin of the Lord's Supper. When did this all begin? We talked about it briefly before. Now, look with me and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you haven't done so already. Verses 17 through 34. <clears throat> if you have been a Christian for even a short time, you'll know by now that 1 Corinthians is a unique letter and that the letter is filled with rebuke and correction. Paul, it's a polemic letter. It's an emotion-laden epistle. Paul teaching, rebuking, instructing, correcting the church of Corinth. In fact, the passage that we're studying now is is surrounded by correction and rebuke. The previous section, Paul just finished correcting the church concerning the role of men and women in the church. Now he directs their attention to their meetings. Now particularly how they viewed and practiced communion. Paul says that their meetings were so unbiblical that instead of, being, instead of it being a source of encouragement and strengthening, their meetings became a source of division and discouragement. That is why Paul says in verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. He's transitioning from men and women roles in the church to their church meetings, particularly Lord's Supper. And he says, the way you practice communion, I have no praise. I have no commendation. Because in fact, every time you get together, there's more harm. The source of discouragement rather than a source of strengthening for the church. Now Paul here makes several important points, but we don't have time today to get into it all. For the time being, for, for today's teaching, I just want to focus on verses 23 through 26. And from here we will find the origin of the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, it has been said of this passage, quote, These verses are like a diamond dropped in a muddy road. It is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And yet, it is sandwiched by strong rebukes. Rebukes of worldly, carnal, and self-centered attitudes and behavior. Paul starts verse 23 by telling them that the teaching on communion that he had already passed on to them was not from himself. 
but was from the Lord Jesus. Paul makes it clear that what he was teaching was not his opinion, but it was God's revealed word. Verse 23, For, I, for what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. From the tenses in verse 23, we know that what he's about to tell the Corinthian believers is not new to them. He had told them already. He is reminding them of what he had already taught them. Now, most conservative scholars agree that 1 Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels, possibly around A.D. 51. Now, if that is true, then Paul's account here in 1 Corinthians 11 is the first biblical record of the institution of the Lord's Supper, including direct quotations from Jesus. This came before Matthew, Mark, and Luke's rendering of the first uh, communion meal on the eve of Christ's death. Look with me to verse 23, part B. The Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, he took bread. With those words, the apostle takes us to the origin of the Lord's Supper. He takes us to the historical context within which this occurred. Again, we see a jewel against a filthy backdrop. The most beautiful and meaningful of Christian celebrations was instituted on the very night our Lord was betrayed and crucified. The very night of His betrayal was the night that the first communion took place. The Gospel writers tell us that 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 night was a special night for the Jews because it was the night of the Passover meal. We're going to turn to several verses in the New and the Old Testament. Turn with me to Matthew 26, 17 through 30. To prove that it wasn't just any old meal Christ was having with his, with his disciples. It was a special meal, special meal. The Passover meal celebrated by all faithful Jews. Matthew 26, 17. They were in Jerusalem. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Verse 18 replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. It was the Passover meal within which Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. It was not incidental that Christ initiated communion during the Passover meal. God had instituted the Passover when He delivered His people from their 400 years of bondage in Egypt. It was a significant meal in the life of the Jews. A familiar story in the Bible. Turn with me to Exodus 12. Exodus chapter 12, and we see um, Pharaoh's heart hardened by the work of God. He will not let the Israelites go. God promises one final plague, and He tells Moses, after this plague, Pharaoh will let the nation of Israel free to go into Canaan. And He tells the instructions for the Passover meal. Instructions are given in Exodus 12. 3 through 49, we'll read selected passages. Verse 3, 
tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs, herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left in the mo- till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Go down to verse 21. We'll read a few more verses. Here is the actual practice of the Lord's Supper. Then Moses said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes to the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants, When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as He has promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of Israel, houses of the Israelites in Egypt, and spared our homes when He struck down the Egyptians. And the people bowed down and worshipped. This is the origin of the Passover meal. While they were in Egypt, the first Passover meal was conducted and the angel of death passed over the houses of Israel where their first sons were not struck down. Throughout the history of Israel, they celebrated this meal in remembrance of Yahweh's deliverance of them from Egypt to the Promised Land. It was a yearly festival to the Lord. And it was during our Lord's last Passover meal in the upper room that He established the Lord's Supper. It is during this historical context that 1 Corinthians 11 occurred. Go back with me to verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11:23. On the night He was betrayed, in the midst of His Passover meal, 
our Lord took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By doing this, our Lord transformed the Passover meal into a celebration that pointed to a reality that was of infinitely greater insignificance. The Passover meal pointed, from, pointed to the deliverance of physical bondage from Egypt to Canaan. But the Lord's Supper pointed to the deliverance of the spiritual bondage from sin, from death to life. Our Lord was saying the Passover was a, was a foreshadowing of this. The Passover lamb pointed to me where John says in John chapter 2, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb. It was a type of Christ in the Old Testament. This meal pointed to the reality of Jesus Christ. And by Christ, breaking the bread, sharing the cup, instituting the Lord's Supper, he was saying this prophecy in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The Passover celebrated what was temporary, what was a physical deliverance. The Lord's Supper celebrates the permanent and the spiritual deliverance of the new covenant. The ordinance originated not with Paul, not with the disciples, but originated with Jesus Christ. And of all the time in the ministry of the Lord, it was instituted on the most significant time, the eve before his death. This ought to bring to bear upon all believers the supreme importance of this ordinance of the church. This ordinance that we practice as a church began with Christ, instituted by Christ. We are under orders from Christ himself that this is to be a lasting practice in the church until he returns. Now, there is overwhelming consensus in the church on the terms for the Lord's Supper. There is great agreement, great unity in the origin of the Lord's Supper. The controversy of communion centers around our next two points. What is the true purpose of the Lord's Supper? And secondly, how are we to carry out the Lord's Supper in the church? What is the true intention, purpose of the Lord's Supper? And secondly, how do we practice this? In the reality of the Christian church, how do we carry this out? Now, before we get to the purpose of the Lord's Supper, let me state to you three erroneous views of the Lord's Supper. Three wrong views, unbiblical views. The first erroneous view, it was never meant to be regarded as a sacrifice. It was never meant to be regarded as a sacrifice. There is no teaching in the New Testament that would lead us to believe that there is any change in the elements, any corporal or physical change of the bread and wine becoming the physical body, and the physical blood of Christ. 
These things are not taught by the Scriptures. The Bible teaches that there is no sacrifice, no altar, no change in the substance of the elements. That the bread after the consecration is still literally and truly just bread. And the wine after consecration is still literally and truly just wine. In no part of the Bible, New Testament, do we find any mention of a sacrifice except the sacrifice of prayer, except the sacrifice of praise, except the sacrifice of good works. There is no sense where communion is a sacrifice to God. The last sacrifice we are told of in the epistle to the Hebrews is the once and for all finished sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's the only sacrifice. And that is done once for all. That's the only sacrifice pointed to in the New Testament. You know, in the actual evening when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, our Lord holding the bread in His hand, He said, this is my body. And while holding the cup, He said, this is my blood. But look at the context. The context of these famous expressions show clearly that the original hearers understood Him to mean that they represent Christ. That what Christ was saying was, the bread represents my body. This cup, this wine represents my blood. It was obvious to the original hearers that that's what Christ was saying. There is no change in the elements during communion. The elements are in no way sacrifices made to God. They represent the once and for all, the final sacrifice of God given to us. They're not sacrifices to God. They point to God's sacrifice given for us. Secondly, the Lord's Supper was never meant to confer grace or benefits to the participants. The Lord's Supper was never meant to confer grace or benefits to the participants. The elements are in no way a means of grace. It is not a medicine or a charm which works mechanically, irrespective of the state of mind of the recipient. For example, let's say we have NyQuil here and you were to drink a half a bottle of NyQuil. Whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you believe in the potency of NyQuil or not, it will have its intended effect upon your life, right? upon your body. You'll be drowsy, you'll stop coughing, you might go to sleep. Well, not so with the elements. The elements itself do not confer grace where grace does not already exist. There is no benefit of an unbelieving person eating the bread and drinking the cup. If the person is not regenerate, they can eat that bread and drink that cup, the kingdom come, and there is no benefit, there is no difference. There is no, mean, there is no grace conferred to that person through these elements. It does not convert, does not justify, it does not convey, convey blessing to the heart of an unbeliever. It is an ordinance, not for the dead, spiritually dead. It is an ordinance for the spiritually alive. It is not for the faithless, but for the believing. It is not for the unconverted, but it is for the converted. It is not for the impenitent sinner. 
But for the humble saint, never meant to confer grace or benefits to the participants. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper was not meant to be a mere social feast. It is not a social meal. In a lot of churches, maybe younger groups like college groups or youth groups, I've seen, I've observed, they do it this way. They use the Lord's Supper as a means to foster unity, foster Christian fellowship, foster love among the church. No, that's not the intention of the Lord's Supper. The primary focus of communion is not horizontal, horizontal, but vertical. Communion is not centered on man, not even the church, but supremely focused on Christ. Now, what is the biblical view? What does the Bible tell us the purpose of communion? Turn with me again to verses 23 through 24. Look at those verses more carefully. On the night he was betrayed, verse 23, our Lord took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, given for you, which is for you. That bread that had represented the Exodus, it now represents the body of Jesus Christ the Messiah. The bread now represented the life, the incarnate life of Christ. And he says, this life was given on the cross, is given on the cross for you. Consider those two words, for you. Our Lord gave His body, His entire life for us who believe in Him. He paid the ransom for those who would believe that they might have life. Verse 25, in the same way after the supper, He took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The cup that represented the Lamb's blood smeared on the doorposts. It now came to represent the blood of the Lamb of God shed for the salvation of the world. The old covenant was ratified repeatedly by the blood of sacrificed animals given by man. But now the new covenant has been ratified once for all by the sacrifice of Christ, His death. Blood pointing to His death. The sacrifice of God. Hebrews 9.28 Hebrews 9.28 Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He will appear, appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Therefore, we find here the true purpose of communion. Second part of verse 24, Do this in remembrance of Me. Second part of verse 25, Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of Me. The Lord's Supper, the main purpose of the Lord's Supper is that it is a memorial. It is a memorial. Now we have these statutes and monuments to, as a memorial to fallen soldiers in combat, fighting for freedom, fighting for co- country. We've seen or maybe visited the World War II Veterans Memorial or the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. They're building one for all the firemen, all the uh, policemen that perished in September 11th. Now these statues, these monuments, they stand to remind the visitors of the sacrifice of, of these brave men and women who gave their lives for freedom and country. Well, in like manner, the ordinance of communion is also a memorial. 
as we gather together and partake of the bread and drink the cup, it is given to us to remember the great and unequaled sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We participate, we partake of this to remember His death on the cross. Now, I've got to point out that for the Hebrew, to remember meant much more than simply to bring back something to mind. For the Jews, it was much more than just simply recall what happened. For them, to remember is to go back in one's mind and recapture as much of the reality and significance of an event as one possibly can. They would meditate. They would think through. They would call to mind the reality, the significance, the experience, the truth of an event. And for the Jew, that's what it meant to remember. Therefore, for the Christian, to remember Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross is to relive with Him His life, His agony, His suffering and death as much as is humanly possible. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do not offer a sacrifice again. We remember His once and for all sacrifice for us and we dedicate our lives to His obedient service. That's what we're doing. And the grace that comes to us, yes, in a sense, there is grace conferred to those with believing hearts that partake of the elements, but grace is mediated through our memory. As we recall the doctrine of Christ's death, His sacrifice, as we recall the scripture verses concerning His crucifixion and the purpose of His death, that is how we receive grace. Through the word of Christ, not through the elements. Now, we, we must ask, why did our Lord prescribe to us, why did our Lord prescribe to us to remember His death in such a physical way, in such an ex- external practice? Aren't the words of Scripture enough? Hey, isn't it enough to read about His death? Isn't it enough to sing about the Lord's crucifixion? Why do we need to have this external practice of the bread and the cup? Well, I believe it highlights the centrality of the cross. That above all of redemptive history, the death of Christ is so significant, is so important, is so central, that Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, to specifically remember this event. Our Lord knew full well the unspeakable importance of His own death for sin as the great cornerstone of the Christian faith. He knew that His own satisfaction for sin as our substitute, His suffering for sin, the just for the unjust, His payment of our mighty debt in His own person, He knew that this was the very root of soul-saving, and soul-satisfying Christianity. He knew that without this, His incarnation, His miracles, teaching, His example, His ascension, could do no good to man without the cross. He knew without this, there could be no justification, no reconciliation, no hope, no peace between God and man. Knowing all of this, our Lord took care 
that his death should never be forgotten by Christians. He carefully appointed an ordinance in which his sacrifice on the cross should be kept in perpetual remembrance. No matter how far the church may stray, a church faithful to the Lord's Supper be faithful to remember the Lord's death on the cross. J.C. Ryle writes, The Lord Jesus knew what was in man. He knew full well the darkness, slowness, coldness, hardness, stupidity, pride, self-conceit, self-righteousness, slothfulness of human nature and spiritual things. Therefore, he took care that his death for sinners should not be merely be written in the Bible. For then, it might have been locked up in libraries or left to the ministry of faulty preachers in the pulpit. And then, it might soon have been kept back by false teachers. The Lord's Supper is a standing provision against man's forgetfulness. So long as the church stands, the thing which is done at the Lord's table proclaims the Lord's death until He comes End quote. That is exactly what Paul says in verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, by our participation, by the sheer act of it, and by the preaching of God's Word surrounding the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are bringing that truth to the forefront of our minds, individually and as a corporate body. To our community, we are all thinking one thought, the death of Christ. Therefore, when a believer comes to the Lord's table, he remembers Christ's work on the cross. He receives grace. He receives encouragement as he remembers the Lord. At the same time, he communes with the saints. He worships in holiness. He proclaims salvation in Christ. He anticipates the return of the Lord and the coming of God's kingdom. Beloved, this is the purpose of communion. Right here. The Lord Jesus Christ intended the Lord's Supper to be a continual remembrance of the church of His atoning death on the cross The bread broken, given, and eaten was intended to remind Christians of His body given for our sins. The wine poured out and drunk was intended to remind Christians of His blood shed for our sins. Our Lord mercifully provided an ordinance in which true faith might be encouraged by being physically reminded of Christ's sacrifice. Well, we have a little more time. Let's continue on. Um, we've considered the terms of the Lord's Supper. We've considered the origin. We've considered the true purpose over against the false purposes proposed by, by many. Well, let's go to the practice of the Lord's Supper. The practice of the Lord's Supper. Uh, highlight to before we go to the right practices, uh, outline to you three erroneous practices of communion. Number one, the Lord's Supper is not administered rightly when it is seen as the first, foremost, 
and most important practice in Christian worship. The Lord's Supper is not administered rightly when it is seen as the first, foremost, and most important practice in Christian worship. This is exactly the case in the worship of the Roman Catholic Church. For them, the high point of the worship service is not praise. It's not the reading of Scripture. It's not the preaching of God's Word. The high point of their service is when the priest consecrates the bread and the wine. And by his consecration, they are transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. And people become saved by eating the body of Christ and drinking literally the blood of Christ. So for them, communion is central. When Christ comes into reality is when worship reaches its height. And it's sad to find that so many Protestant churches are following this error, whereby they place significance to communion that is not warranted by the Bible. Whereupon, the reading of Scripture, petitioning to God in prayer, the proclamation of the Word of God is relegated to a lower sphere than communion. We need to ask, is there a basis in the Bible for such a lofty view of communion? Is the Lord's Supper central to the church's worship? Beloved, there are, but there are at most five, There are at most but five books in the whole New Testament in which the Lord's Supper is even mentioned. Only five books. About grace, faith, redemption, the work of Christ, work of the Spirit, love of the Father. The central theme of the New Testament. About man's ruin, man's weakness, spiritual poverty. About justification, sanctification, and holy living. The inspired writers give us line upon line, precept upon precept about the Lord's Supper the great bulk of the New Testament is silent. Even the epistles to Timothy and Titus, containing much instruction about the church, do not contain a single word about communion. That fact alone surely speaks volumes. To thrust the Lord's Supper forward until it towers over and overrides everything else, is giving it a position for which there is no authority in God's Word. We are strongly opposed to the modern practice of substituting the Lord's Lord's Supper for a sermon. It is our conviction as, as a church that preaching of the Word of God is a far more important practice, ordinance in the church, than the Lord's Supper. The second erroneous practice The Lord's Supper is not administered rightly when it is administered with an extravagant degree of outward ceremony and veneration. When it is administered with an extravagant degree of outward ceremony and veneration. Now, I I do not want to be misunderstood. I am not condoning carelessness or irreverence. What I am saying is, let us give honor where honor is due. I mean, consider the extravagant practices of many churches today. The ostentatious treatment of the communion table as an altar. The lights, the ornaments, the flowers, 
the gold-plated dishes and bowls, and the ceremonialism of the whole process, the gestures, the postures, the processions, and the mystical and mysterious veneration as the bread and wine are taken, as if something spiritual, supernatural is occurring? I mean, did we get all this from the Bible? <clears throat> Where is the simplicity of the First Communion and the communion practiced by the New Testament church? Where is the simplicity which our Protestant reformers both preached and practiced? The Lord's Supper, administered in this way, is not right. It is so spiritualized and ritualistic that it is no longer the Lord's Supper. One final erroneous practice. One final one. Again, the Lord's Supper is not administered rightly when it is indiscriminately pressed on Christians and non-Christians. When it is indiscriminately pressed on Christians and non-Christians. And again, we do not want to be misunderstood. If you understand me right here, you will understand why we have a separate service for communion. Our church service, our activities our midweek flock groups, our retreats, all our activities are wide open to everyone. We invite anyone and everyone to come and hear the Word of God, to be saved, to grow with us. But communion, the Lord's Supper, it's a family meal. It is only for members of the family, only for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Again, just by example, consider Acts chapter 2, 41 and 42. Peter proclaimed the message. They accepted the message. They were baptized. And then they broke bread. Who are they? They are the believers. They are the Christians. It is our firm conviction that the Lord's Supper must never be placed before Christ. It is never communion and then salvation. It is always salvation and then communion. Men should always be taught to come to Christ first and then draw near to the Lord's table. Because without faith, these elements, the whole practice is meaningless. You know, I fear that thousands today are practically substituting the Lord's Supper for repentance, faith, and union with Christ. They are flattering themselves that, hey, I'm partaking of the bread of Christ, the body of Christ, the cup of Christ. And they're flattering themselves and deceiving themselves that they are justified before God. And sad to say, many leaders of the church, knowingly or unknowingly, are feeding this self-deceit by indiscriminately administering the Lord's Supper to everyone. To encourage people to come to the table without knowledge, without faith, without repentance, without grace, I believe, is to do them great harm. You are promoting superstition. You are promoting man-centered, synthetic religion and condoning, encouraging self-deceit. The master of the feast, our Lord Jesus Christ, He desires to see at His table not dead guests, but living ones, He wants those present before Him 
who have hearts of faith. You know, in practice, we cannot read hearts. I am well aware. We must not be too strict and exclusive in our terms of communion. But we must never shrink from telling the unconverted and the unbelieving that in their present condition, they are not fit to come to the Lord's table. If you profess to be a follower of Christ, we'll take your word for it. You're welcome to join us, from, join us in communion. But if you do not profess faith in Christ, if you have not trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, you are not to participate in the Lord's Supper. Well, taking a lot, a lot of time, but close with three final thoughts, just three simple thoughts. Number one, if anything, the Bible calls us to have a right view of our communion service. Now, I was going to say high view, but we don't want to venerate it. We don't want to separate that as a special category in the Christian life where that is when, um, in a supernatural way, God mediates His grace upon us. No, that's not a right high view. We are to have a right view of the communion service where we understand that this originated not from the church, not from the disciples, but Christ Himself. That for the believer, it is not an option that not to partake of the Lord's Supper is disobedience and it is sin. Secondly, having a right understanding of communion. That we are not making sacrifices to God. There is, that these elements are not transformed. There is no mysterious or mystical interchange during communion. It is simply a memorial to Christ's death. And then finally, in light of the fact that today we're having our communion service, um, I'll teach this in more detail next week. But eating in an unworthy manner, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Um, Just a quick interpretation of that. The context here is there were these wealthy Christians in Corinth who ate a lavish meal before the poor Christians came. And there was division and fraction within the church. And Paul is saying, when believers come to the church and they divide the church, they're eating the bread and wine, drinking the wine in an unworthy manner. Paul is calling, reminding us that the Lord's Supper is, a rem- is remembering what Christ did on the cross to unite the church. And so to eat with that kind of attitude, that kind of mindset of division in the church is eating the bread and, and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner. It is not this intro, intro like self-examination, introspection, where am I worthy of this cup? No one is worthy. If you wait till you're worthy to eat the cup, where every sin is dealt with, every weakness is set apart, and you feel you're worthy, and I'm worthy to eat this bread and drink this cup, at that point you're unworthy. Because you're filled with pride. What Paul is calling, believe it at Corinth, 
and the believers here at Cornerstone, that when we partake of the bread, we are to honor the unity that Christ has created in the church and not to segregate the body according to socioeconomic uh, levels, that we are one body, that as we gather to eat the bread and drink the cup, we confess our sins, yes, but the purpose is to remember Christ and His death on the cross for our sins. Let's pray. Father God, it is indeed pressed upon my heart centrality and the importance of the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. That everything else in Christianity is secondary to that. That because of His death, our sins are forgiven and we have peace with God. We have been reconciled to You and we have eternal life. Lord, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord, uncloud our minds, release us from the baggage of our upbringing in the culture and in the church. Help us to be reformed in our thinking. Renew our minds, the Word of God, so that we would have a right understanding of communion, that it points to You, it points to Christ, it points to the cross, and Your substitutionary atonement for our sins, so that our, our participation will be honoring unto you. It will be pleasing to you. We thank you for this time together. We pray that Cornerstone, you would help us to participate in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.